As you can see, uh, our reading tonight is Isaiah 58, which commences on page 1154. Isaiah 58 on page 1154. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem to be eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor, the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you do do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on that on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honourable 
And if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, as we come again to your word, we pray for you to teach us, for you to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, for you to draw us near and to help us to know how we can honour you to truly honour you as Lord. Father, come and teach us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the GPS, before Google Maps, way back in another age, I was a shortcut expert. I could find the quickest way to any destination. When the traffic was slow, I could quickly calculate and calibrate an alternate route, a better route, an efficient shortcut to our destination. I was good. It didn't matter whether it was the back streets and the narrow lanes of the city or the unsealed stretches of road in the country. I could come up with a shortcut. I was a shortcut expert. Just ask Chris. On second thoughts, don't ask Chris. He might have a different story to tell. But we all do love a good shortcut, a a shortcut that provides efficiency. Over the years and the decades, the centuries, the descendants of Jacob, God's beloved Israel, became experts in shortcuts. They were experts in taking shortcuts in worshipping him and living his way. And as a result of this desire to, to short track what, it needed, what needed to be to please God, they were sidetracked by God. God sidetracked them in Egypt. He sidetracked them in the wilderness. He sidetracked them in Babylon all because they would take shortcuts in worshipping him and living his way. Here in Isaiah 58 in verse 1, there is something to shout out about without holding back. This is something that needs to be proclaimed with a voice like a trumpet. I still haven't stopped sprouting about the Roosters win in the grand final and my prediction, my prediction that they would indeed win. But this isn't good news that's being sprouted here. This has to be exposed because it's happened time and time again. It's not acceptable. It isn't right. Again, they're taking shortcuts in their relationship with God. They are guilty. They are guilty of not worshipping God as they should. There are strong echoes here of Isaiah 1. You may recall in Isaiah 1 there was a a litany of of their their false worship. For example, in verse 
15 of chapter 1. We read this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. For your hands are full of blood. Now again, it's not a failure to gather together and worship. It's not a failure uh, to to follow the, the religious days, the outward practice. It's not that that God's on about. It's about the cynical adherence and not a heartfelt response. We see in verse 2, they seem eager to know God's ways. They seem eager for God to come near, but they have forsaken God's commands. And God always looks deeper He's not interested in facades. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel uh, comes to the house of Jesse, he's looking for a replacement king for King Saul. God says to him at one point, Do not consider his appearance. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance But God looks at the heart. In verse 3, we see that their humility is pretense. It it is a sham. Many years later, Jesus comes to their descendants. And they are still guilty of this. They are still displaying a self-righteousness. And we know that Jesus saves his most scathing words not for the tax collectors, the prostitutes and the sinners but for the religious people. Woe to you teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you whitewashed tombs. They look good. They carry around a a sense of holiness that they point to, but in fact, inside, they carry with them the stench of death. They point to themselves, they promote themselves, rather than pointing to the giver of life. The people of Isaiah's day, like their forefathers and like their descendants will be, They do as they please. They wander their own way. They ask for just decisions, but act unjustly. Their presence, their pretense, cannot hide their thoughts or their exploitation of others. Their worship cannot cover up or compensate their ongoing disobedience, their sin. They assume that a shortcut here and there will be overlooked and remain hidden. We've done, we've done our part, God. We've fasted. Why aren't you answering our prayers? They lay the blame at God's door. And this is always the essence of false religion. A quid pro quo attitude. An attitude of 
you'll have to do this because I've done this. And this is rooted in works, not grace. They believe themselves righteous enough to deserve God's favour. They believe themselves good enough to deserve God's favour. They are good enough to put God in their debt. For us who know of God's grace, his abundant grace in Jesus, do we just look back at these people and shake our heads in disbelief? Or do we recognise that we too are cut from the same cloth? Do we at times believe ourselves righteous enough to deserve God's favour? Do we think we deserve we deserve something from God? To the degree that I convince myself that I am righteous, I have less esteem for the perfect righteousness of Christ. The only righteousness in which I can stand before God. Perhaps before we start confessing our sins when we pray, we should confess our righteousness. Praise God that he has worked by grace, that he continues to work by grace to rescue me from me. And to rescue you from you. When we forget mercy and think that we are deserving, we find it all too easy not to extend mercy to others. True humility is where mercy for others grows. And so in verses 4 to 7, we see that God seeks true humility, He seeks integrity. He he seeks a wholeheartedness. Verses 4 and 5. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. There is no integrity here. In the New Testament, Jesus is the only man referred to as a man of integrity. And ironically, it is by the Pharisees. In Matthew 22.16, when the, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him, they say this, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. The word translated integrity is literally truth. Jesus, you are truth and you live according to God's truth. You are true in your words, you are true in your actions. You are true through and through. They are right. They are right. 
but they don't realise it. They are right because he is the way, the truth and the life. He is holy and fully true. But their worship, the worship displayed here in Isaiah, is offensive because it is partial. It is watered down, it's half-hearted, it's not pure but tainted, not honourable, and interestingly, not practical. Not practical. God dismantles their view of worship. Their worship is to be reflected in the workplace and in the wider community. In verses 6 and 7, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice? To untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with, with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? True worship of God leads to a focus on others, which is part of our worship. A true worship brings justice. True worship is motivated by grace and brings freedom to the oppressed. This true worship is full of compassion. This true worship leads to the feeding of the hungry and the provision of shelter and clothes for the disadvantaged. This worship treats everyone with dignity as a child of God. This worship welcomes. It does not turn away our own flesh and blood. Now in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus extends this teaching to us. You, you know the parable. An Israelite, a descendant of Jacob, is left naked and in need. In fact, we're told he is half dead, he's critical. Yet his countrymen, the priest and the Levite, ignore him. They turn away from their own flesh and blood. The original hearers of this prophetic parable would also turn away from Jesus, their own flesh and blood. We read a few weeks ago in Isaiah 53 verse 3, they will hide their faces from him. But of course there was more in that verse, wasn't there? He was despised and rejected by mankind. Suddenly, we're enveloped into this. We're part of this. We held him of low esteem. He was not treated with dignity as a fellow human, let alone as a perfect son of God. Rather, he was pierced, he was crushed by us, by our common blood. Praise be to God, it was also for us. Back to the the parable. We know it's far-reaching in its scope because it comes uh, as an answer to the question, who is my neighbour? 
So when Jesus first enters this conversation, he talks about what it means to truly follow God, to truly worship him, to love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love your neighbour as you love yourself. Uh, Jesus then tells the parable, and the answer to the question, who is my neighbour, is of course the Samaritan, the unclean one, the enemy. True worship welcomes all. True worship finds its origins in covenant obedience. Loving obedience is the channel to blessing. Not as a meritorious work, but as appreciation of a rescuing grace. Nothing has really changed since God's people were rescued from Egypt. They had not known freedom for 400 years. They come to Mount Sinai and are given guidelines by their rescuer to assist them to live as free people. They are no longer to live as slaves. These ten words, ten commandments, as we know them, were lived out completely by Jesus. The whole law was lived out by him. And he summarises the commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as you love yourself. This is true worship motivated by grace and expressed in love. When worship is motivated by grace and not false humility or self-righteousness, God by his spirit engages in an inner work, a heart-changing work. God's blessings are recognised and acknowledged and grace becomes more evident. The promises here are strongly motivational. Listen to the promises in verse 8. Light, healing, righteousness and protection. In verse 9. You will, you will cry out for help and he will say, Here I am. Here I am. In the NIV it's got here am I. But it takes away some of the power of knowing that this is the God of the burning bush. This is the eternal God who has made himself known. Verse 11. Uh, There is strength, there is satisfaction, uh, there is refreshment. And of course, these were and are present in Jesus, the light of the world, the great physician, the righteous one, Emmanuel, God with us. In verse 12, there is an interesting blessing for those who have returned from exile in Babylon and who are hearing this. These words would have encouraged them to pick up tools and to join Nehemiah in restoring the walls. 
the walls of Jerusalem so that together, together they could join in God's work and be called repairer of broken walls. Whereas as we look at it, we're more likely to see this referring to Jesus, the reconciler who comes to prepare, who who come to gather people to work together with him to create something even grander. And so it is, we find our joy in the Lord. They find their joy in the Lord in, in embracing, working with God as co-workers. These blessings seem to be contingent on one thing. Us turning, us turning back to God. And this is a constant theme we've seen in Isaiah. Turning back, turning back, turning back. In verse 9, they need to turn from placing burdens on others, pointing fingers at others, speaking maliciously of others. And they need to turn to meeting the needs of the hungry. In other words, turning from self-seeking and turning to focusing on God who will enable them to serve others. In verse 13, we're reminded on two occasions that this is not about us doing as we please. It's not about us doing as we please. This is a gracious appeal to a better way. Returning to God by repenting, which will produce joy as we celebrate God's gracious forgiveness. I know in the evening uh, last week you had uh, the sermon of the prodigal son. In the morning we had the other two uh, parables from Luke 15, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the preacher then, Tom French, Uh, pointed out that the theme, if you like, of all of these parables is repenting and celebration. Turning again and again to God and celebrating his grace and forgiveness. Now you've heard me say, uh, I don't know how many times, we need more and more to be involved in daily repentance, a, a daily turning back to God. A daily worship, a a, a daily living, daily repentance, daily celebration. These are days acceptable to God. Together we need to lift our eyes to a grander vision of God's glory and God's grace. So that in humility we can live out justice, freedom compassion and dignity like the Israelites we have not been freed to walk our own way we have not been freed to write our own rules we know that rebellion never gives life self rule never brings freedom we need grace And grace has worked and is working to daily rescue me from me and you from you. 
Nothing has changed other than the clarity that Jesus has brought and bought. True worship is about loving God and loving others. God has an eternal perspective and so is never in a hurry. Therefore, it is neither helpful or necessary for us to take shortcuts. God is never in a hurry. Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. No shortcuts, a long obedience in the same direction. So together as God's people here, let us continue to encourage each other to grow in our love of God and our love of all people. Because this is worship that is acceptable to God. No shortcuts, a long obedience in the same direction. Let us pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we pray that indeed you would call us back to yourself each day and we would listen to that call and we would open our hearts before you in repentance that we might know the joy of repentance, the joy of forgiveness, that our lives might be worship of you. And we pray in your precious name. Amen.